Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and again, I am joined with Dr. Norman Horn, and we are going to talk about capitalism. I've been recently thinking about why people are so discontent with capitalism, either as it is or as they think it is, and why do we have so many anti-capitalist tweets going on out there by people in Congress, by people who just have no idea what they're talking about. They're making claims out there like, you know, capitalism causes poverty, and, you know, it's only because there's wealthy people that there's something called poor people. And And Bernie Sanders is right. Yes. Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's just pretty – it's – it's a pretty abysmal place out there if you're looking for some pro-capitalist sentiment. Um, And so one of the things that Norman and I wanted to talk about, because it's really part of our core values as the Libertarian Christian Institute, that we espouse free market capitalism. And there's a lot of, you know, misunderstandings about what that is. There's a lot of misconceptions. People kind of come at it from different angles. They talk about it from different angles. And a lot of those things really do kind of work together in just different ways of explaining, here's what I mean by capitalism. Yeah. So we're going to get really basic here and start from the beginning and and just kind of work our way through some of the, the, the simple things that go on behind the scenes of our values and what we believe as both as libertarians and also even as Christians. Yeah, and I think the the reason that I think it's a problem in discussing, and I don't think it's a problem on the one hand, but the problem in the conversation, I guess would be the best way to say it, is At that- large. Yeah, yeah, the big conversation, not this conversation, um, because we're perfect at conversation on this, on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we don't do any edits whatsoever. None. None. <laughs> it's raw. <laughs> Sarcasm. Okay, so one of the problems in the big picture of things and debating capitalism is is sort of definitional. If I don't even know if that's a word, but we're often talking about two different things. So I, I've often had the experience of explaining to my leftist friends that this is what capitalism means. It means that you know there's a market free from coercion. There's no cronyism, and the you know it's it's mostly competitive and it doesn't have any state interference. And my friends will say, well, that's not what we have. What capitalism is is a system that that uh, basically allows people who have wealth to do whatever they want. And the little guy uh, gets gets the shaft and doesn't doesn't get to uh, become wealthy like they are. And so we have rich people and poor people and it creates inequalities. And you libertarians just don't don't recognize that. That's that's kind of where you yeah. just don't get it. And you don't realize that you're enabling wealthy people to exploit the rest. Um, cue the Marxist violin. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of, and, and the thing is, and I'm pretty sure I'm probably guilty of this on Facebook, through emails, uh, maybe even in being, uh, vague in articles or not as articulate enough in, in past writings to not really espouse capitalism as it, as it, as it should. And so all of us who propose, who are proponents of capitalism, which I would probably guess the vast majority of our listeners are, uh, may not espouse capitalism properly. 
And I don't mean properly as in like, oh, you're doing it wrong and we have the right way. But I'm just saying that like if you have the conversation and you're doing a poor job of communicating what capitalism really is and, and kind of go back to the basics, which we're going to hear in just a few minutes, then the people that you're arguing with, they're not going to be convinced because they're going to just come at it again another way. And you're going to be like, well, no, that's not what I mean. And, you know, conversation is good. But um, we're going to try to sort through some of the mess in what does it mean to espouse capitalism? And what does it mean to espouse capitalism as a Christian? And to be fair, some of these anti-capitalists have some valid criticisms insofar as what they describe has to do with acts of aggression that are perpetrated against uh, certain people. There's a, it's, it's absolutely the case that as libertarians, we are against cronyism. We are against the state being able to define profits for people to, uh, to give special favors and monies to businesses and think in other words, giving them, um, preferential treatment in a way, uh, where, where they're able to essentially give a wealth transfer from anyone to that business. And we think that that's wrong and that that's anti-competitive and that's anti-capitalism for that matter. Um, but that's, but it went, so when an, an anti-capitalist wants to say, well, that's what we mean by capitalism, then perhaps what we need to do is go, all right, well, let's take a step back. And let's define what capitalism actually is from the from the very beginning. And perhaps there we can make some real progress. When you say what I hear you say, Norm, let's talk about what capitalism as it actually is. Uh, I, I think of the state of existence that it is. So I wonder if like people on the left could be like, well, as it actually is, is what we have today, even though you and I would be quite unhappy with the quote unquote free market that we have today. Well, there are pieces of the market that are that are quite free and there are degrees of freedom, even if you will. But that doesn't mean that capitalism, qua capitalism, is bad. There are certain parts of our society and, you know, whether that's we're looking at various elements of our of the state uh, and various elements of businesses out there that act like the state or are basically arms of the state, uh, that th those are not as they are meant to be. And that's and that's OK. We can ad we can admit that. As libertarians, we're not trying to say as libertarians, well, we're just defending the system as it is. I mean, the whole point is that we're trying to say the system should not be this way. And that includes elements of the the economy that are being operated in, in such a way that is anti real capitalism. Yeah, I think it's important that we acknowledge that we are not for entirely, at least, the system that we are currently operating under. There are conditions under the quote-unquote capitalism that exist in the West today that we're very much not in favor of. And so it's it's important to acknowledge that we're also unhappy with some of the same things anti-capitalists are unhappy with. They're just not really anti-capitalist in their critique. They're anti-cronyism in their critique. And they need to know that, too. So I promised yeah. you about three minutes ago that in about three minutes we talk about what we think is the real <laughs> definition of capitalism. And ding, ding, ding. It's now that time. <laughs> so what is capitalism? If I'm if I'm going to give you the quickest and simplest definition that I can, I'm going to tell you that it is a system of justice that is characterized by private property rights. And because this always comes back down to what is private property in a socialist system the means of production are owned by the state. In capitalist societies, or what we what we would call real capitalism, the means of production are owned by private individuals. And the more that private individuals can maintain and have 
reasonably enforced private property rights uh, where they're, they can be uh, f- free from aggression by both per- person and uh, entities such as the state, uh, the more real capitalism will exist. But the more that the state encroaches upon private property rights, uh, the more of an anti-capitalist system will indeed develop. So that that is something that I think is is really crucial to kind of get out there from the beginning. If you don't believe in private property, then we have a problem. Uh, you you're going to have to have some theory of property rights in order to account for scarcity in this world. And the only rational way to make any sense of it, and the only moral way to ultimately operate within it, is to is to have a system of private property rights. And this is something that we, as Christian libertarians in particular, believe that Christian theology affirms really, really well. And in fact, we've incorporated this into LCI's core values, where we say Christian theology affirms the essential tenets of free market economics. We expand upon that and then say that respect for private property, voluntary exchange, condemnation of theft, and the value of cooperation and service towards achieving common goals flows naturally from Christian thought and habit. That is the that is the basis of how we want to talk about and elucidate the properties of capitalism, if you will, from uh, from all of these points of view. And this also conforms uh, very nicely with what we see in the School of Austrian Economics uh, as well, as uh, as really taught and and uh, and elucidated by our, our uh, you know kind of uh, the Mises, Rothbard, and Hayek uh, ways of thinking. So it all starts with property rights, but when we think about capitalism or free market capitalism, we often think about the free exchange of goods and services. And so what does just just endorsing the system of private property rights do for that? Well, the, the next step there is kind of what Norman described in LCI's uh, core value is voluntary exchange. Well, if you don't have the right to your property, then you don't have the right to do things with it as you want. Either hold on to it or exchange part of it or do something with it that allows you to exchange parts of it with other people and so that property can can change ownership within a private market. And furthermore, and to evolve. We through our use of private property, we are we are trying to better ourselves as a result of and our because our natural state of being is to perhaps have these things around us, but not necessarily to know uh, exactly what configuration will result in optimal living. And the goal of of the way that we use our property is to better our state of being, and that's that is a, in fact that's. You know, it, in many respects, from a Christian theological point of view, that is precisely what the Dominion mandate is: uh, to go into the world and to and to uh, uh, to, to cultivate it, to make something of it. Uh, that's what God placed us on this earth to do. That's what that's the Adam and Eve story is really all about: being placed into the world to do something and to to cultivate it, to like a garden, in a sense. And so that's that's part and parcel to what we are in kind of required to do from a biblical point of view with the things that we have in front of us is to is to use it in some way. And that includes both uh, growing it, whether, you know, you're talking about a, you know, a literal uh, plant or cultivation of, of the earth like that or, or animals and, and, uh, and things like that or building things out of uh, the materials that are around us and, and creation uh, of, of goods, services, buildings, any of this stuff. Uh, in order to both better our condition and then as the result of that, we'll also be able to exchange that with others in ways that makes their lives better as well. 
Now that's that brings up an interesting kind of uh, point the, point here that often comes about as a criticism of capitalism, and that's well, what about this profit thing? And sometimes you'll hear these critiques say things like, well, aren't profits what drive capitalism? And isn't this just evidence for like the love of money or something like that? Doug, what's the, what is the problem with an objection like that? Well, the first thing I think of, you know, as you were talking about, you know, using, using resources that are at our disposal for, for good and to cultivate the earth and do things with it is, well, how do we know if we're doing that properly? Because without some sort of feedback mechanism, you aren't going to know, well, wait, should I make this or should I make that? Should I cultivate this part of the land or should I cultivate that part of my land? Should I take this and build something and trade it with this person or with that person? How would we know? And of course, you know, the end of the story, we talk about prices, right? So we, we think about prices. Well, how do I know? Well, prices are, as Steve Horwood says, incentives wrapped in knowledge. And, and so we have the incentive to do things based on prices and that gives us knowledge over what we're going to do. So if we're making a profit and and this is, this is in some ways conditional because out of context, this might sound like a really, uh, incorrect statement to make, but generally speaking in a, in a free market where there's free flow of, uh, basically you have free individuals trading, uh, profit is what we see as I w- you would say the reward for wisely using scarce resources. Um, and th- the issue with that, I mean, it's obviously far more complex if there's any economists listening, especially an Austrian economist. Yeah. Um, there, it's, it's far more long-term than that price, especially, or if you're Hayekian, um, you're going to basically see the emergence of prices as an ongoing thing. And the ongoing development of prices as we learn in the market will help us know how well we are using scarce resources. But the simplistic version of that is, well, we we do that through profits. And what's really strange is, is that people look at profits often as a, not an evil thing, although maybe excessive profit might be considered an evil thing. But it's really strange to me that people thinking, oh, well, they just want profit. I mean, my son has said this about his school, which is a nonprofit organization. Oh, they just they just have high prices for lunches because they just want money. And I'm like, yeah, that's not what's going on there. <laughs> They're probably not even making money on the lunch prices, but uh, or maybe maybe covering the cost. But, um, you know, it, there's this sort of like. I don't know, like the skepticism of people who are doing business is like, well, they just want money. Um, well, yes, there there is a sense in which that is true, but that doesn't mean it's the same as the love of money, as the Apostle Paul kind of warns us against, you know, that that it that is the root of all kinds of all kinds of evil. Profit is not bad, and in fact, it is a good indication uh that you're using scarce resources wisely. So is it evidence that there's the love of money going on. Well, no, I mean, no more than, I mean, if someone's criticizing wealthy billionaires for being, you know, greedy and loving money, I'm like, well, how is that any different from you wanting to make a good wage and save some of it and save money when you go to the grocery store? I mean, that's exactly right. That is exactly I mean, like, right. If you're into extreme couponing, it could be argued that you're also greedy because, well, why don't you just pay the price that the store wants? Like, wh- why are you trying to save money? Uh, it's, it's okay to have money. And it's okay to do that because it's okay for us to say that because we know that there is a higher purpose for wealth. Wealth isn't just there. It's not necessarily – and it's not in and of itself inherently good or evil. Yeah, there's a there's a far difference between biblical greed and the making of a profit. That is 
that is something that is crucial to understand as as an economist and a theologian. And, and I would say, let's say particularly as a theologian, economists kind of recognize this because it's part of their training. Theologians don't always get this because they don't typically get a lot of economics training. <laughs> but hopefully, you know, what we can do here even now is to is to bring some of this knowledge into the theological world and uh, and give give a little bit of insight there. Yeah. Norm, could you believe it that I was reading – I was reading Facebook as if it were newspaper or something. Haha. Uh, I was skimming through Facebook and I saw somebody post some – I don't know if it was a meme or it was just some sort of like fancy lettering on top of a really, you know, background, pretty background or something. And it was said something about, you know, uh, the only reason we have poverty is because there's a whole bunch of greedy, wealthy people. <laughs> I'm like, real. I, I was sad. I'm like, yeah, you laugh, but like, this is people believe this stuff. But people believe this stuff sometimes. They they sometimes they just believe that capitalism creates poverty, but that's really not the case. And in fact, it's a far, it's such a far cry from it. It's it's just it's mind blowing. But so let's let's make this clear from the outset. Like, the original condition of man is not a technological utopia that we virtually kind of almost have today. <laughs> where you have cell phones and and computers and the ability to you know record a podcast where one guy's in Pennsylvania and the other's in Missouri uh, that's that that's not the natural state of man the natural state of man uh, is poverty I mean let, let's like you absolutely like we're we're on the other side of Eden at this point as they say you know because we uh, it, it, this is not the Garden of Eden where there is no scarcity and that's that's it. But the on this side of Eden, the condition that we have is poverty. And thus it's really kind of silly to kind of out from the outset say capitalism creates poverty. Now, perhaps one might get a little more sophisticated and say, well, there are some ways in which, you know, one wealthy capitalist could impoverish somebody else at, at their expense. Well, sure. Yeah. But that's called taking advantage of somebody else. It's called committing aggression against them. If you take away something like that, well, then, yeah, that would be committing a, an act of aggression against them. But that is not that it doesn't you don't start off with capitalism and then get to poverty. You start right. from poverty and you have to create our way out of it. Right. So par- progress doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and that's that's something you just got to understand. Well, I'm going to disagree slightly and only tongue in cheek. But if you look at the graph <laughs> of, of human and biological history, Norman, it almost did happen overnight. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Wealth was created in the last, what, 200 years as unseen before in, in uh, known history. Uh, and so that's what's yeah, strange yeah. to me is that that hockey stick graph, as Deirdre McCluskey would talk about, I, I, any economist who does. Well, and let's you know, be clear. What you're talking about is essentially like world GDP as a function of, you yeah, know, right. human history time. Yes. Uh, that, that it's really been in the past 200, 250 years ish where there, where we've seen a just massive growth of material wealth. And the ability to have real progress in technology and medicine and science and and all of these things uh, that make up the modern world, which, you know, by and large is what accounts for the massive increase in population. And and yet we're able to sustain it still. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's amazing in this respect. Doug, what do you what else do you want to say about that? Yeah. So there is a way in which capitalism, quote unquote, creates poverty Um, is that capitalism has made the definition of poverty change from being without basic uh, being without basic needs to having much less than those who are at the top. 
Um, so, so you're saying it creates poverty only definitionally then. Right. <laughs> in a way. Right. I mean, it's, it's basically like in one small sense, and I'd say this sort of tongue in cheek, but it's, it's an important point to make is that capitalism has allowed us to redefine poverty from being destitute to being at the bottom of the economic ladder. And so if that's how you want to define poverty, sure. Now we have an economic ladder and there's a lot, there's such a thing as the lowest rung of the ladder and there's such a thing as the highest rung of the ladder and of course everything in between. And so if we want to define poor as those at the bottom, okay, fine, except compared to what we're dealing with today, 300 years ago, everybody was, was below the first rung. Uh, in terms of today's uh, standard of wealth. Now, that doesn't mean that today's poverty is not important to deal with. Um, and one of the things that's interesting in in my mind is we've created such a rapid way of eliminating poverty through creating material wealth. And there are still people around the world, either by choice, I mean, if we think of indigenous tribes where no markets, global markets have been able to touch, or if we just think through... Uh, maybe countries that have the opportunity to embrace freer markets, but they haven't yet through for whatever reason, uh, there, there are always going to be those at the tail end of capitalism embracement. That is a phrase I'd never thought I'd say. There's always going to be countries and, and economies that are going to embrace capitalism last and be affected by it last. But that doesn't mean that capitalism created their conditions. Their conditions ex- pre-existed capitalism. And yes, there are still poor people. And in large part, systemically, it's because they have not embraced free markets. It's worth noting here, too, that, you know, those those societies or countries that embrace capitalism last, well, they may be the last ones to gain the benefits, but they'll also reap the benefits fastest when they do adopt them. It's remarkable how a society can be absolutely transformed. And it like it's a it's a it's not just a, you know, they took a couple steps up, you know, and they're moving slowly towards uh, jumping up but, but towards moving up that economic ladder. But it's a it's an absolute jumping of stories. Yes. Uh, it's this is like where you you, know, you hear about, you know, uh, countries that 50 years ago were in the third were, were effectively at the third world or what whatever you want to describe that as that are now using cell phones effectively. And they're using them to do transactions and whatnot. And, and that's just yeah. – that's incredible. More people like in, the, in the developing world own cellular tele- – or internet-connected uh, phones than have running water. Which is unbelievable to think about. I mean that, that's, that's just – that's mind-blowing uh, when, when you really yeah. kind of sit down and think about that. And that's – that doesn't happen – if you just let socialism run amok and where you let the state decide what's going to be produced, that happens when entrepreneurs make intri- make intricate and complex decisions about how best to serve a, 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 the widest br- and broadest set of customers that they can and that they, they, they work to do that well. That is an immense benefit of the capitalist ideal. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, if, if you want an explanation as to why the leapfrog can happen or the sprinting up the ladder of these of these developing nations could happen is uh, Hernando de Soto's The Mystery of Capital. Uh, and it is it is not an ideological book. It's uh, it's a book that has that's founded on some research around the world. Uh, I think it was about 20 years ago. Uh, and, but basically, the gist is this. In the West, we had to discover through the process of, of time, just to, to kind of shorten it here, uh, how markets worked, how capital worked, and the importance of stable property rights. The people who were learning this at the tail end didn't have to learn any of that. They just have to embrace it. They just have to 
say, oh, this is this is what's going to get us to wealth. And it's done like there's this magic key in some ways. Now, obviously, it's not overnight, but it's a it is it is a turnkey ready, if you will, because uh, over the last several hundred years, the United States has discovered what makes what what makes wealth. Uh, there's that. So there's Hernando de Cerdo's The Mystery of Capital. And also Mike Munger, who was on episode, I think, 101, uh, is uh, talked about tomorrow 3.0. He discusses this in an episode with us uh, regarding the regarding what's going to happen uh, as the economy moves forward as an economic re- a world economic revolution. There's going to be the developing nations are going to be able to leapfrog pretty fast for those reasons. So we won't we won't belabor that uh, too much. But speaking of we'll labor, we'll link that book in the show notes, though. So speaking of labor, one of the things that that people kind of complain about with capitalism is that there's there's this sort of like fight between labor and capital. So if you're thinking of like, you know, labor versus capitalists in the way Marx did in the 19th century, it was, you know, the factories, right? You might think, oh, well, these people are just laboring. And then all the people who are uh, managing the firm or own the firm, they're the ones getting wealthy off the backs of the laborers. Uh, and so shouldn't people be owners or uh, they, shouldn't they own themselves? And if so, which we do believe, uh, don't they, shouldn't they get the fruits of their labor? Why should the capitalists get it, Norman? <laughs> I think there's a problem with the metaphor that's being used here to a certain extent. And it is indeed a metaphor because what we mean, what do we mean by, you know, f- fruits of their labor? I mean, this is the this sort of the, the word picture that you're developing here is, you know, I have a tree and then I go up and maybe pick off the fruit from that tree and then I'm able to use that as I see fit. But here's the problem with that metaphor is that in that metaphor, I perhaps that that property or that that pl- plot of land there perhaps is what I own and I picked that apple off my tree and that is what it, that that was my tree. So I could do with that as I want. But we wouldn't necessarily say that, well, if I go, if I, if I look across the street and I look at my neighbor's, uh, property and it's got a, and it's got a fence around it or something to that effect. And then he sees a tree over there, uh, that it's, that it's equally my right to just walk over, uh, to their property and, uh, pick off the fruit from their tree and it just be mine. We intuitively know, unless we reject the idea of private property itself, which is what uh, you know, Marx was doing in, in his explanation of capital, um, it, that, that unless you reject private property itself, you kind of intuitively recognize that that is not something that you were able to do. You can't just waltz into your, your neighbor's, uh, property and just take, you know, take the fruit off of their tree and that's okay. Now here's, here's why that applies to say the factory, you know, the means of production here are owned by individuals. And so they're taking, you know, when, when they take different items or means of production and try and rearrange those capital structures, you know, we call this the allocation of capital into some type of structure that will be able to produce a lot, uh, more than what was being done before. Um, that's, that is something that they're doing with the property that they justly already own. And if they hire someone to work for some type of wage, uh, not knowing necessarily knowing whether the fruits of that labor per se uh, will will actually make a profit, but they're, they're taking a risk there. But they're they're agreeing to work for a wage. That is a voluntary exchange of one's time and efforts and physical acts of of labor. 
uh, for for some type of recompense, that being a wage. And the capitalist there is uh, is taking that risk on both the the work that the that the worker is doing and the goods that they're attempting to produce and trying to uh, to gain something out of that as well. And so both are taking risk. And both are getting recompensed accordingly, um, but it's all via voluntary exchange. If, in, on the other hand, you decide that, well, private property doesn't matter here, how are we even going to get to the state where that type of capital is even going to be used for such a thing? Because there won't be – it just won't work out. Uh, you won't be able to allocate capital in such a way uh, that will that will uh, result in in real prosperity, and that's actually uh, established now throughout the history of of Marxist nations at this point. So, and the thing is, what we've seen is that not just that the well being of the capitalists have gotten better, but the well being of everybody has gotten better. It's not like there's this huge gap, you know, 150, 200 years later that Marx predicted that, you know, we would just have all these wealthy people or this few wealthy people and like everybody else just living in poverty, you know, making these people wealthy. That's not, that's not what happened. Yeah. And, and on the contrary, like the entire world has benefited from the acts of capitalists as it, as it stands. And that, that's just a fact. I mean, the fact, the fact that we're rapidly getting rid of that abject poverty, uh, throughout the world is evidence to it. As we wrap up the episode, it's really important for us to think about capitalism also from a Christian perspective. And there there can be some moral concerns about what capitalism produces or – and I don't mean like by production, but like what what does it do to us as individuals living in such a system? We have a couple of words that we hear in, yeah. in Christian theology at times that we want to, you know, we want to make sure and we address it because if we don't, Somebody's yeah. going to call us out on it, and they'd be rightfully so to do. Yeah, and there's this sort of uh, myth that back before capitalism, we were all cozy with each other and more familial, and we were, you know, we were just better neighbors to each other. Well, we were trying to survive, um, whereas now <laughs> we have time to just sit and drink our matcha lattes uh, with an extra shot of espresso in a really schwank restaurant and talk about the finer things of life, including our spiritual development. Every word in that sentence was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried to do Matcha that on purpose. Matcha and latte don't go together. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I was trying to do that on purpose, of course. So so here's, the, here's kind of the bottom line question. Does capitalism promote consumerism and materialism? And the, the sort of conjoined question to that is, have we sold our souls uh, to gain material wealth? And Jesus said, what profits a man if he gains a whole world and loses his soul? I mean, is this the conditions that we've accepted? And we're like, hey, look, wealth, capital, wonderful, yay. Hello, world, bye, soul. Yes, is that what's happening? I don't believe so. Norman, what what do you think? Obviously, you don't think so either. We're <laughs> libertarian <laughs> Christians. <laughs> I think it's clear from the Bible that having wealth is really a tool and it can be used for good or for evil. And we've even explained that here, that it's entirely possible for someone who's wealthy to take advantage of somebody else and commit an act of aggression against them. That's something that is – I mean it's pretty clear that that's the way it works. It's not the thing itself that is bad but rather the use of it in some type of perverse way. And that's true of so many different activities in in life that we experience, whether that's uh, whether that's, you know, food, sexuality, so many different things that can be uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes uh, and, and can be 
misused. And so wealth in and of itself really, you know, if, if anything, uh, because the natural state of man is one of destitution, wealth elevates that. Wealth is in, in really in many respects a good thing, but it can be used for evil. And that's what people get concerned about in Christian theology sometimes and whether that, that can become all-consuming uh, of, one, of oneself, whether that consumerism becomes the, 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 be, the way of being uh, that, that dominates our life rather than the way of Jesus. And so, yeah, it's important to recognize that that's possible, but that is not the inherent nature of it. And I think that's what we want to kind of emphasize here. The sort of reason that this comes up is we think a lot about advertising and the kinds of like, people want you to buy, 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 of course, because they, they want to sell things to you, that they want to enrich your life, of course, to help them live and, and have a good life too. And so there's this idea that capitalism promotes buying and buying and buying and buying. And as we know, of course, buying and acquiring more wealth doesn't actually make you happy. It doesn't give you satisfaction. It is not an ultimate uh, end in and of itself, uh, of course, because, you know, even though it might be something good to have, if it becomes an ultimate thing, then it becomes an idol. Uh, something I learned from Tim Keller is that good things uh, becoming ultimate things become idols. And of course, we don't want that to happen to wealth. The thing that is interesting to me is that the the idea of consumerism, which is that if we just keep consuming, we'll either be happier or be wealthier or both. Um, and I think there's people who would say one or the other or or both uh, is is really actually kind of deplorable to me. It's like, well, I don't that's not what I promote. In fact, in, in terms of just strict definitional sense, like the idea of capital, which is which involves the uh, the saving of something rather than just continuing spending like there, you know, we, we get into business cycle another episode. But, you know, without you, you can't invest without capital. Uh, and so it's almost I wouldn't say the opposite of spending, but saving and spending are in some ways opposites, of course. So. In some ways, when we promote capitalism and we promote growth and we promote some of the things that growth that growth in order to have growth that we need in an economy, we're really not talking about spending. You cannot spend your way to wealth. That's that is consumerism. And you know what else is consumerism? And that's Keynesianism. And you will find Keynesianism promoting, oh, well, if we just can create more demand, then we can we can have a more healthy economy. Well, my friends listening who might be more on the left, I'm sorry, you can't spend your way to to happiness, of course, but you also can't spend your way to wealth. And demand is not what creates growth in an economy. So does capitalism promote consumerism and materialism? Well, any given individual could become materialistic. I mean, there's lots more to be materialistic about than there was two, 300 years ago, but that doesn't mean it promotes it. Uh, in some ways, go back to what Norman said is you know, wealth is a tool that can be used for good or evil. And we have it's entirely to, possible to be poor and also be completely consumeristic and materialistic. Yes. Yeah, it can be. And you know, yeah, you could be consumed by an individual by having more, whether you're rich or poor. And, you know, it can go it can go both ways. To conclude this episode. We want to invite you to make sure and check out our core values where we talk about this a lot more. And, of course, we discuss these things about economics and ethics all over the, uh, our website at libertarianchristians.com. And we hope you'll join us in that discussion as well as try and engage with us on our, web, on our website through comments or through our Facebook group or on our Facebook page. 
Uh, there's so much more to talk about here, and we've only scratched the surface of the depths of economic knowledge that one can gain through uh, through just diligent study and looking at the world. Uh, we also want to kind of reference a couple books as we conclude as well. First off, we've talked about uh, Hernando de Soto's The Mystery of Capital, and I'd also like to kind of point out Ludwig von Mises' book, The Anti-Capitalist Mentality, which is another way of uh, another book that really highlights what uh, what the the anti-capitalists uh, really want to try and, and kind of confuse people about uh, when it comes to how to how to manage an economy uh, through the government. That's a really important book for Austrians as well, and uh, and so I hope you'll be able to check that out. You can get that free uh, in at Mises.org if you want to check that out at some point. Uh, but with that, we're so glad that you joined us for this episode about capitalism and its discontents, and we will see you next time. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.